When everything is personalized, nothing is personalized. If an AI can read your LinkedIn profile, can read your 10Ks, can read your press releases, whatever, and personalize and that every single email that you as a buyer, potential buyer, receive all looks kind of the same. Delete, 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 right? And and then then what? Welcome to the Sales Consultant Podcast. My name is Derek Williams and I'm your host. I'm happy to introduce the very first episode of our second season, and our special guest kicking things off is with the esteemed Jeremy Donovan. Jeremy spent 17 years at Gartner at the start of his career. He also spent four years at SalesLoft as a senior vice president of revenue strategy. He's the author of five books, including the international public speaking bestseller, How to Deliver a TED Talk, as well as Predictable Prospecting. Today, he's the EVP of RevOps and Strategy at Insight Partners, a global venture capital and private equity firm that invests in high growth technology, software, and internet businesses. I hope you enjoy the conversation as we navigate through the dynamic intersection of technology and sales strategies. You're, at the start of your career, you were very focused on the technical realm. You know, you led research analyst teams and have evolved into a go-to-market revenue guru, if you will, right? You spend time in product management, product marketing, and you're heading up sales strategies today. How Talk to us about the evolution from that technical focus to GTM. Is, is it playing well for you, that technical aptitude in your you know, advisory capacity? Why not stay focused on you know technical areas? How did you get make that leap, if you will? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've always considered technical aptitude to kind of be a secret superpower. Mm -hmm. And I mean, without going through the whole, I'll start you at 10 years old, but then I'll, I'll jump 40 years from there. So at, at 10, I've realized, or I thought, I guess, I wanted to become an engineer. And I did pursue that and, and started my career off that way as a semiconductor engineer. But um, one of the things I realized, it was semiconductor engineering and computer science. One of the things I realized, this is talked much about this, but I thought about becoming a full-time programmer back, back then. Hmm. And the reason I didn't do it was because I dream, when, I, when I'm coding a lot, I dream and code. And that they're really kind of nightmares in a way. I, they're very stressful, non-fulfilling sleep. So I decided I can't I even would, imagine. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't do it for for a living. But I do. Like I'm 50 now, so I said I'd jump 40 years from there. And you know, to this day, I still code. And I've kept mm -hmm. up. You know, started out with basic back when I was you know little, and then we progressed through tons of languages. And and now I kind of view everything as. Like it doesn't really matter. You can flip between languages. I do more JavaScript and um, Python these days, but I, you know, it's, it's it, you sort of jump between those things. But I think the interesting question is, you know, for a salesperson and or for a RevOps person, and they're probably very different roles. Does that kind of te technical aptitude matter, right? Like I've pursued not just the computer science, but statistics and just other things to keep my brain sharp and in the math and computer science areas. For RevOps, I can unequivocally say that absolutely it's a superpower, right? Like I'm, I'm able to process and crunch data, I think, a lot faster than on average, which means I can get, you know, using using code, which means I can get answers to complex questions, right? That may not be even really possible to do in a spreadsheet. So like here's, a, here's an example of my current work where I was actually coding just two days ago. Um, I you know, we have 500 plus portfolio companies and we have tons of data from them every quarter, but that data is is it's structured, but we don't necessarily crunch all kinds of of statistics off of it. Like what's your, you know, what's your sales and marketing efficiency? What's your 
what's your customer acquisition cost uh, payback period, like whatever it happens to be. Right. So to go into Excel and, and, and um, like generate a report using that Pivot data table with or all something. These metrics. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I did was I wrote some code that basically takes all that data, calculates all those ratios, can, does charts on every statistic to trend that over time and then pushes that into PowerPoint and then converts that into PDF, right? So I could press a button and I wish I could say it was like two seconds later for 500 companies, it takes a while. Like, you know, a few hours later, you get 500 PowerPoints with all the trend data for every company. And then you could, wow. add, I could simple to add code that would then automatically send that to the, or, or, you know, the CEOs and CROs of our portfolio companies. So like, that's the kind of thing where, I mean, it's not, the coding is not that complicated, but, but to have that skill allows you to be able to, you know, delight your coworkers, delight your customers, in our case, delight our portfolio company leaders, all that much more. So yeah, that's always been a, been a, a secret superpower. So I think in RevOps more generally, like I think being able to do stuff like that is, is really, really helpful. In sales, I don't know. Like I thought, I thought it'd be really interesting if someone were to come along and do kind of programming for salespeople. Uh, and even though they wouldn't necessarily use it, I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't. I well, mean, if I they're selling something that is in that realm, I, I think there's definitely a given there that there should be some aptitude towards, you know, programming. If you are working for, say, an API company or a yeah. software development company, uh, you, you should probably understand some of those core concepts. You may not roll your sleeves up and do the coding yourself, but there's an innate uh, or intimate understanding there that would probably apply. Um, but in terms of just being able to be more effective in your outreach, in your servicing of clients, yeah, I mean, it's probably not as relevant in my mind, but uh, I I've seen some very technical reps that you know, put together you know, their own screen scraping and 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 so these more technical uh shortcuts if you will that the average salesperson isn't taking advantage of because they just don't have that skill set so yeah. and, and yeah. i think it's in sales management too i think even more importantly uh or, or adjacent to sales ops or rev ops i should say is, is sales management is you know all the tools and the tech stacks that we're using if the you know leader of that team isn't uh you know, familiar with how this stuff works, maybe not going to the degree you're talking about where you're building in automation and creating your own line of, you know, lines of code, but there is a technical aptitude that uh, yeah. I, I think is, is paramount. On, on sales management, for sure. Right. I mean, you need to know how to use your BI tools. You need to know how to create reports, right. whether that's in Salesforce or in whatever, you know, whatever you're using, Looker, Power BI, what have you, Tableau. Well, Tableau is super complicated, uh, uh, but you know people do love Tableau. So to be able to to be able to put stuff in there, I think I think does matter. And to your point about APIs, I remember listening to a podcast the last month or two, which was one of the first podcasts with the head of sales at OpenAI, and she was hmm. mentioning that when she got hired into her role, they and I don't know if they still do it, but they were basically requiring everybody who got a job there to like call the chat GPT AI, uh, sorry, AI via API. There's a lot of words in there, but, yeah. but a lot of acronyms there, but, but basically use the API in Python to, to like do something. And it wasn't, you know, it's not meant to be super complicated, but it gives you an empathy, right. For, for Absolutely. the user and the product and, and to be able to also 
mean, so much of, of sales is storytelling. So for her to, and her team to be able to go in and basically, you know, have that empathy when they talk to developers and say like, yes, I have called a REST API, right? Using Python. People don't expect that. I think it gives you- I've a, initiated that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, gives you credit, <laughs> it gives you a certain credibility. Yeah. I, I for, think there should, sure. good, good. Well, I, I, it's obviously played through in, in your career and appreciate the the time traveling there that that was helpful and for those that um don't know jeremy uh his background let's see just real quick cornell university bs and ms in electrical engineering university of virginia master's degree in data science and from the university of chicago both schools of business and mba in economics and statistics so quite the quite the resume there perpetual perpetual student yeah the data science degree was recent there really wasn't right. Those sort of things didn't exist. I got, I had a little extra time during COVID as, mm -hmm. as you know, some, some of us did. So I did a, I did a degree in, in part-time. That's a whole other conversation about the evolution of the education system over time, less relevant to, to sales strategy. AI and machine learning was really what the degree was about. So it was kind of on the technical, on the technical side. So I did that before I'd ever, well, you know, most people had ever heard of chat GPT and we were using the, uh, the, the T in, in GPT is, is a transformer and Google, you know, really did a lot of the innovative work on transformers early on. And there was a publicly accessible model called BERT, B-E-R-T with, again, that, that T is for transformer. So we were actually in the, in the classes using, you know, the early versions of this stuff to do generative AI and the course also was, it was a little bit of a, of what, of the like text-based stuff. It okay. was much more heavily fa focused on the, the more sort of traditional machine learning models for like prediction. I actually think there's more value. Uh, I mean, it's complicated. In sales right now, I, I personally find more value in the predictive AI applications than I necessarily do in the generative AI applications, but yes, Gen, Gen, Gen AI is is definitely catching up, and and it's 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 like amazing to watch from month to month, right? What what happens? I, I was you know four months ago, five months ago, I was like, ah, this is kind of a toy, and then ChatGPT four and enhancements to uh, ChatGPT four came out, and then Google. Um, changed the BARD interface over to Gemini in early mm. December. And with those two changes, like, wow, it's, it is, it's, it's really dramatically improved. Like I, I'm finding it an essential tool in, in particular from, I can think of two use cases. One is in, in general, like my, my usual search process, because I'm a, uh, I think I heard this term the other day, an infovore. Like I love to consume information, but <laughs> let's say I'm, yeah. I, I'm I'm searching for something, and what I would normally do, right, is Google and pull up ten pages, and then sort of synthesize across those pages by reading and taking notes and finding similarities and what have you. But that's exactly what these things do, right? So once mm -hmm. ChatGPT and 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 Bard. Uh, opened up and started looking at the internet, like it's doing that work for you. So now I trust it to, to basically do that stuff. So that that's one use case I use all the time. And then the other one, I, I had not used it much for writing because it's not, I do write, but I, 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 I don't know. I was kind of snobby about writing from, from scratch, but I had to write a, 
had to write a blog post recently and I had content, I had a presentation basically, yep. and I had an outline. So I basically just fed the outline of what, of the article I wanted to with, write uh -huh. and I gave it the, the, the PDF and I said, write a thousand word blog post. And it was, maybe I changed five words. It was awesome. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, that's good and bad, right? Is the ability to create content so easily, um, is a good and a bad, right? It's like, a good and a bad. It's a, it's the, it's the, uh, arms race at this yes. point, right? Uh, you, you had a post recently that this is a great segue. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase the post a little bit. You can reframe it for me. Uh, but it starts out calling attention to the fact that AI is nearing perfect personalization what and what that means. And, it, you know, it will uh, enable salespeople uh, and to, to outreach at scale using AI and personalization, which could be good. Um, but then there are some counterpoints to that as well in terms of how uh, our prospects will receive that. And then, you know, there's this waterfall effect of, well, if, you know, we're going to get perfect about personalization, then the buyer is, is going to adjust their expectations, probably start ignoring a lot of stuff. So reframe this for me. I think it's yeah. a good segue away from the, the AI piece that you're saying to how does this affect your everyday salesperson and what you predict in 2024? Yeah. I mean, I think you said it perfectly. So, right. We're take, take our own portfolio companies. Um, you know, we're, we're, they're asking us and we're advising them on how to leverage AI to become more productive. Right. I mean, the mantra has gone in the, I think business world in general, but certainly in VC and PE world, from you no know, one ever said growth at all costs, but I think they probably said aggressive growth. And and now we all say, you know, efficient growth, right? So efficient growth, so, healthy yes, growth, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so you know, AI is potentially one of those things that, that helps you gain efficiency. And I, I just kind of on those walks when I'm not listening to podcasts, I'm thinking. And while I'm thinking, I'm sort of thinking, okay, we got to play the play the multi-step chess on this stuff, like winding the clock back, right? Early personalization that was super effective was putting someone's first name in the subject line of an email. Super <laughs> it, effective. It was. Because, and, it, and I think it was, it was effective because it was novel. And it was effective because there wasn't, the, the, the available tools didn't do that. Right, like you had to physically type that person's email, that person's first name into the subject line of the email, and what that triggers is like all those things, right, of of persuasion and influence, which which is it's novelty, it and it's also reciprocity, right, that that person took time to think about you as a as a human and type your name in there, and like it worked, ditto with so many other things. And then once dynamic tags, right, came about and you could just drop this stuff in, then every email we got had the first name in there and then it just stopped working. So people stopped doing that. There's countless examples of that. So what, how this ties to AI, right, is there's this concept in AI of the uncanny valley where you can't tell whether it's a human did it or an AI did it. And mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I actually don't think the, this uncanny valley matters in the personal, in response to personalization. So my concern is, is when when everything is personalized nothing is personalized i guess right and mm -hmm. and you, you the response rates actually can they have been in a long term decline and i imagine that true cold email response rates these days I, well i know it's less than 2% for sure at scale when you talk about tens of millions of emails hundreds of millions if not billions of emails being sent by b2b you know salespeople 
it, I, I would not at all be surprised if the truth was sub 1%. You'll read a LinkedIn post every once in a while where someone will say, you know, I got X ridiculous response rate to a cold email. And I call BS on that. Like the 70% you know, open rates, uh, 60% open rate or response rates, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, open rate is total BS because, yeah. because the, the spam checkers like open the email, they follow links. Like none of that stuff matters, but it's, it's positive response rate. Positive response rates are probably well below 1%. So getting back to this, which is if an AI can read your LinkedIn profile, can read your 10Ks, can read your press releases, whatever, and personalize and that every single email that you as a buyer, potential buyer, receive all looks kind of the same. Delete, 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 right? And and then, then what? Um, I, that to me is the interesting question, right? Then what? So... It's, I don't think this is rocket science, right? I mean, the same thing that has worked for probably since the beginning of human civilization is referrals, right? If, if someone else is using something and getting value out of it, and I know that person and trust that person, then I'm like, you know, I'm more likely to use it. And the closer, the more close the connection is, the better. The, high, the highest conversion rate is an introduction. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. And, and it, so, right. This gets at, Word of mouth becomes incredibly, it becomes even more valuable, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's it goes back of, to the efficient growth piece of like really taking care of that embedded base and making yeah. sure that you know they're reaching their intended goals with your solution and getting to a point where they want to sing your praises and yeah, talk yeah. and refer you out. And yeah, on that post, you you made a good point though as well is that this outbound channel of phone, email, social, we're going to get 99.99% perfect in personalization. They're going to start ignoring it because everything will be personalized. So that pushes us down into the other channels to yes. invest our efforts, right? Content is, is uh, inbound, PLG, these sorts of things. But then again, it's like, then what? Because right. AI catches it. So I think it, it leads back to when you do acquire customers, and you do have those first intro, you know, discovery calls all the way through to customer success that were very customer centric in this approach and helping them reach their goals. Because if if we're not picking good customers and they're not, you know, renewing, reaching their goals, referring, then it doesn't matter how yeah, you're personalized we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're out of luck. And and to, to that point about channels, right, is we're seeing it right now that we have not every portfolio company, but many, many, many of them are redirecting budget from outbound into those other channels, in particular inbound PLG, if applicable, and then the partner channel as well. Because a partner is, is right, that partner has a relationship. They're already selling into the, cu the customer. It goes back to the same, introductions. It's, it's the, the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's the same. It's the same thing. It you know, it's tricky. funny. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it gets tricky with like, the review sites, I do still trust the review sites like a G2 or something like that. And my, my rationale is, is every vendor in the review site can game equally. So if they're gaming equally, then whoever, but it's still like, here's the gaming, right? Which is you reach out to your, your high net promoter score customers and you offer them whatever a 25 or $50 gift card to write a review for you on those sites. But look, if you can, they, they're still, that still takes some amount of effort on, on the part of these people, right? So I, I do think there is, there's some, 
value to it. And, I, and I'm still going to shortlist based on like a G2 uh, or, or similar review site. So I, I think that's another, right? Like that's another valuable use of marketing. I want to switch to a sales enablement uh, topic for a quick second. So sales enablement as a function has gained a lot of uh, popularity has been adopted, I think, at a higher rate in the last couple of years than than ever before. Uh, we've seen the evolution of sales training going more broad and encompassing to sales enablement. Do you think we're at a point now, because I think you would agree that however good our strategy is, however good our tactics and our playbooks and these things are, it all comes back down to, and even how technical we are, it still comes back down to people in uh, these organizations executing to the best of their abilities. Uh, so do you find as a strategy person that sales enablement folks should be more involved in those earlier strategy conversations and setting the direction of the business? Uh, or where, where do you see them playing a role? Because I'm seeing more VPs of sales enablement yeah. and, and these sorts of roles popping up. So again, totally switching gears on you yeah, here a little sure, bit, but sure. is sales enablement a, a big uh, focal area, do you think, as a function and you know, from an execution standpoint in, yeah, in the, yeah. the coming year? Oh, so many thoughts. Uh, one is, is yeah, I mean, I've worked with some VP, you know, XVP level sales enablement people. One that comes to mind is Sean Fowler, who was very much my partner in crime at Sales Loft. And he and I were peers. We both reported to the CRO and you know, we collaborated incredibly closely, like lock, lockstep his organization and, and my organization and, and us personally. And mm -hmm. I saw the value, right, that uh, a super strategic sales enablement person can can bring. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely see the value there. I think the chat, you know, it's a, a couple thoughts. So one is I remember working for a, a different CRO one time who basically said, we were talking about sales enablement and, and he pointed out amongst his peer group, that there are some CROs and CEOs who believe in enablement and some who don't like. Right. Philosophically. Yeah. yeah just, philosophically. Yeah. And if you philosophically believe in it, then you're going to invest in it. And then the question is, what's the right ratio? So whenever I've, whenever, uh, you know, uh, when I was kind of more actively operating, I would always have an agreements with the CFO. And I basically said, look, I don't want to negotiate with you to hire incrementally all the time. Let's just build everything off of ratios like prospectively based on where we think we are going to be at headcount in the next six months, right? So, um, you know, we would negotiate a ratio for RevOps people. We would negotiate a revenue for enablement people. Um, and part of the reason for that, and, and this gets at the value pieces, is like, what's the return on sales enablement? What's the return on RevOps? It's so hard to quantify. And it, it is considered to be a support function. Right, mm -hmm. they don't have indirectly, mm -hmm. and and I get asked all the time by, you know, the CEOs and CROs of the portfolio companies I support, how how should I measure return on enablement and or how should I compensate the enablement and and or RevOps people, and my answer is please use a ratio. You will never be you will pretty much never be able to measure the return on enablement. Um, I'm sure there are people who would differ with me. I mean, there are there metrics. Sure, can you measure sales productivity? Sure. But are you going to actually be able to do an A/B test where you kind of enable some people and not others at a at a right? Like how do you know it was the sales enablement you know path? It wasn't the sales management. It wasn't individual changes. Like how do you attribute that right. back? So is that what you mean by ratio? Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. And and the ratio is like how many enablement people per quota carrying seller. Okay. Right. And 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 just lock that ratio in and go. And and don't worry about trying to measure the unmeasurable because it's just you know, it's just not possible to do the attribution. And then from a compensation point of view, what I say is look, just tie the sales enablement people, give them a base bonus split, whatever that is, and tie that bonus to the exact same target that the CRO has. Right. So if the CRO mm-hmm. has a, mm-hmm. you know, increase uh net ARR by X net new ARR by X dollars, then just let the enablement people and the RevOps people have that. I don't in my experience RevOps people and and sales enablement people or revenue enablement people are they're like passionate, dedicated, hardworking Absolutely. humans. And I don't actually think that they are particularly uh they're not as they're not coin operated, right? Like they're gonna bust their butts no matter what because because they have a passion for the job. And um I think you're rewarding. They can share in the company's success, but I think they're going to work just as hard whether you gave them a hundred percent base or whether you had a base bonus. That's interesting. I, I don't think they're going to change their work. Unlike a salesperson, where I think there's a lot of research and debate on, you know, should we incentivize through variable compensation? Should we go all base? And there's an age-old debate there uh, on that. But with a someone yeah. a rev ops and a sales enablement function. It, it could go either way just because of, you know, it's, it's passion. It's the work that they, they like to do. Yeah. And with, with reps. Yeah. I, I think most of the time I've seen this very rare to see a hundred percent base kind of for sales. And even when I've seen it, what it really tends to be is, is like a lagging moving average. So for example, you know, like if you, if you close 400 to $600,000 of, a business, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you have a hundred KOTE. If you close eight hundred to one point two million, maybe you have a two hundred KOTE. And there, I'm just using like a five x, a five x ratio in there. And as long as you close that in the last year, you kind of move between bands. A lot of times, that's what's really going on is it's just a moving average, which, by the way, is fine. Like it, it gives some some you know safety to the to the reps, as I understand it. I don't know if things have changed, but like if you were trying to qualify for a mortgage, they would only do that off of your base. So that would help salespeople, you know, be able to, you know, buy, buy a home. Do things in life, right? Yeah. yeah, But it's, but yeah, but it's, it's pretty rare. And it also tends to be in, in, in areas where like maybe some company has a huge amount of inbound demand. Right. So it's a it's a lot more transactional. I don't think you tend to find that in. In those cases, I definitely see a less aggressive split. You know, you're not seeing the 50 50 splits in terms of base and variable. I think to your point, you you start seeing the 70s and the 70s, 30s and and, and these sorts of things, 75, 25 kind of splits where variable compensation doesn't make up the vast majority because, yeah, we're well structured. We're well defined. We have great inbound. Right, we 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 have a partner program that's feeding you, feeding you as well. Uh, but if it's look feast or famine type of situation, we need we need new business. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna go aggressive on on some of that. I, I did um, want to go back and tie AI and enablement okay. together. By the way, so I was watching a, a replay of a uh, of Mark Roberge at the last Saster. I didn't attend, but I watched the replays, and he was talking about AI, and he was challenging you know himself and the audience to think about areas where 
you know, AI, where there were new, really new areas of opportunity for new companies, because his point was the existing companies who, who, who already have great data moats are going to lead on the integration of AI into those features. So it's really hard for companies to gain a foothold. So like take where I came from in sales engagement, different than enablement, right? You've got three, three-ish companies, two, three companies who are the dominant companies in the space, tons of customers, tons of data, like they're probably going to win on the application of AI into that world, probably. Um, he was he was saying like, what is an area where there actually isn't a ton of data, and and sales enablement is actually one of those idea uh, areas. The, re the rationale is you could argue that the conversation intelligence people have a ton of data, right? They have all these call recordings, but what they have is they have recordings of reps talking to prospects and customers. What they don't have is they don't have data on reps being coached by their managers. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit, right? I, I don't think people do enough of listening to calls and putting comments about the calls. Agreed. Agreed. hundred percent. Massively underutilized that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, so like, I think there's an opportunity that if those kind of coaching moments platforms, be, yeah, I mean, I, it comes to mind of the coach CRM I know is as a cool little platform that they have for putting those coaching plans together, incorporating yeah. CRM data and, and different things. But to your point, how do you aggregate and use AI to pick up on anomalies, identify the trends, and yeah. then maybe even recommend uh, coaching plans in a, yeah. in a jiffy, right? Yeah. Without having to do a lot of that manual work. I mean, you could blend conversational intelligence into those models, probably. Yeah, yeah. I ran across one company where it will it'll listen to your call, right? And it's sort of an enhancement to the conversation intelligence folks because they're already giving you summaries. They're already telling you what your percentage talk time and your number of questions, right? All this analytics, yeah, which yeah. is quite useful. This company tries to take it one step further and actually give you coaching points. When I was talking to the founder of this company and I was asking a little bit, a little bit under the covers of it. And, and right now it's just, let's say you and I are having a conversation. It's going to give me some feedback based on, you know, my what what i've said right. what it does not yet have or none of these systems yet have but i'm i think imminently could have is it doesn't know me um longitudinally it doesn't know me across time right it, it's not when it's coaching me on this call it's not looking okay. back at the 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 other calls i've done and watch that evolution it also doesn't know necessarily the sales methodology of your company it doesn't know your product it's still going to do like you know, the, the model, yeah, the models can need, will get better and better, but you kind of need a local model, right? You almost need this local model that is trained off of my company's calls and my calls. It needs to know what are good calls and bad calls. And that, that requires some effort, right? So that we're not there yet, but I, it's, that's another one that, that I'm fascinated about on the AI part. In the interim, my closing thought on, well, you can continue, but like my closing thought on this is uh, I, I personally try to encourage sales managers to dedicate to time block and and like review whatever it is, a some number of, you know, one call per rep per week and go in there and actually listen to it and put the comments. Part of my rationale is, and I did a poll on this on LinkedIn, but I can't remember what the results exactly were, but it was like getting tying this back to the beginning. If if you are my manager and you listen to my call and you put comments in, I think I'm far more likely to take action than if an AI did that because this person in a position of authority to me took the time to give me feedback. 
I think I'm more likely to listen and take action. I don't statistically know the answer to that, but I, I, based on every, I read a lot of academic research and like based on everything I've studied and read, that feels very, very logical to me. Well, I appreciate that as a fractional manager myself. It's one of the big focal points of what I do with SDR teams is exactly that, which where executives don't have the time, the bandwidth, or even maybe the skill set in some cases to really diagnose these calls patterns and how we're opening the call, how we're asking for the meeting, how we're navigating objections and rebuttals. Are we consistent with our messaging and explaining the product accurately? Yeah, I think AI, we can, it sounds like we'll get to a point where we can ingest a model that has not only our internal specifics and methodology, my work, body of work over time, but also industry best practices, taking in inputs like from predictable prospecting and the challenger sale and these things and being able to coach from a, a larger external model as well. Because that's, I think, what we're doing as external consultants a lot of times is we're taking in synthesized experiences and research, and we're trying to tailor it to the unique specifications of that environment, that company at that time and that user. Yeah. And so... Mind shifting here on the show, ladies and gentlemen, uh, AI has an opportunity in the sales enablement space. Thank you for that, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm going to take you through all, some. All to Mark Roberts on that, by the way. So yeah, I'm another stealing. person I would uh, love to interview one day, if 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 at all possible. Anyway, so rapid fire for you. I'm going to uh, let you continue about your day. Uh, just in closing here. Uh, so who do you follow on LinkedIn? Who do you get your cues from? I follow you. When you post, I read it word for word. Who is that? person for you? Uh, is it Mark Roberge? Is this someone else? Is there a certain yeah. research firm? Mm -hmm. I follow a lot of people. I would say the ones I, I respect people with a, 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 a quirky point of view and, and a unique point of view. So the, the two that I really like right now, Jason Lemkin, just day after day after day, I think he produces really insightful, insightful stuff. From a company point of view, I love to follow Gong. Uh, you know, that, I think they had fallen off the wagon a little bit. They did. Great, yeah. Great, great mm -hmm. under Chris Orlov, great under Devin Reed. The two of them left, there was a gap. And then now I think they've upped the game again. So I'm starting to see good stuff come out of them again. And the last one, uh, that I found recently guy has a huge following. Um, but I hadn't discovered him recently was a guy named, uh, Chris Walker, who does revenue vitals podcast and, and posts on LinkedIn. I think he has a really fresh Point of view he's more marketing centric but it does yeah you actually sales. reposted something from him recently that was talking about i think uh cold outreach but yeah yeah uh, another person of yeah very marketing centric at least in the years past but yeah uh, still still but yeah. good follow good follow yeah. good thank you what's a book you've read recently and you know what you know is it something that a, every revenue leader should read obviously we've talked about predictable prospecting you have four other books you've authored um but you know, is there something you've read recently that's really key for a revenue leader to maybe study? Yeah, I will. I, I read, by the way, I read a ton. It's a whole other line of conversation. I'm in countless books a year. I was actually thinking about a New Year's resolution to not read any new books. <laughs> okay. Um, but just anyway, reread yeah. the old ones. It's just still, reread the old yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. Just reread. Because I read literary fiction, sci fi, business books, nonfiction that's not business, the, the gamut. But in sales, um, I read recently Selling With by Nate Nasrella. That's the latest sales book I, I just finished. And I thought that was outstanding. It's it's uh, kind of expanding upon the champion part of Medic. So I, I think that's a that's a good read. Um, 
and then other books I've read in the last sales books I've read in the last, you know, like year or two that I thought were, were new and outstanding. I would put, the, um, I would put the jolt effect. Yep. Really, yep. really Absolutely. high up. The follow up to the challenger sale. Yeah, Donovan and those guys. Yeah. Yeah. That one was great. And then the other one I would throw in there is probably John McMahon's qualified sales leader book. Uh, that one's outstanding. So there's, there's three like really solid, really solid books in recent years. Very good. Yeah. I just finished Jeremy Michael's 1.0 of the Jeremy Michael method. Um, reading, the, uh, Jer sorry, John, Jeremy Michael. Sorry. Justin, uh, Justin, Justin Michael. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, I'm looking at talking to a Jeremy. Um, but yeah, I think Justin Michael method 1.0, uh, particularly like the later half of the book, just very actionable. So for those that are looking for good reads as well, last question for, you know, let you go. What advice would you give sales consultants out there that are advising B2B sales companies? You know, what's the one, as you know, a lot of our, uh, this is the sales consultant podcast. A lot of our audience are consultants, whether of enablement, tech, uh, general advisory, a lot of different lanes there, but is there one piece of advice you would give companies? You're taught you're advising 500 yeah, companies yeah. every day in your portfolio. What's that one gem that you would leave us with? I, again, I steal 99.9% .9 of everything. So I'll steal this one from Chris Walker, who we mentioned earlier. And yeah. it, Chris puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that there's a lot of things that are, he calls them, he'll refer to them. I, I don't know that he uses this exact language, but basically as vanity metrics, right? So like pipeline is a vanity metric or MQLs is a vanity metric. And the thing that matters is whether you have this, this activity, this program, this channel, like whatever has led to close one business. So I, I think this may, just like many things, right? Uh, content creators are provocative and they, they sort of set up dichotomies that may be true or false dichotomies all the time. I, I, I think this is an and and not necessarily an or, which is like, yes, uh, absolutely nothing matters if it does not translate into closed one revenue, ethically closed one revenue. Um, but uh, sorry, and I should say, sure, like MQLs too. Uh, but my, so the advice is, is at least playing off of Chris Walker's thing is, is don't don't locally optimize right is is do do the math and make sure that the things that you're recommending actually are to use a, a finance term accretive for the company so a good example of this is like you know i've done a lot of evaluations at our portfolio companies requests of their sales development programs and one of them that i did recently we sliced north america and europe they operate in, in those two regions. And then we sliced SMB and mid-market. That, that's where they operate. They don't really do large enterprise stuff. And we did that two by two and looked at, even if they optimize, like what is the current performance in terms of closed one business, in terms of customer acquisition costs, cost of sale, what have you? Like, where are they at right now? Are they efficient right now? And can we rational, can we, is, it, is, is there a world in which, that segment that in that two by two grid could ever be profitable. And, you know, there was one or there was, you know, there was a segment in there that we came up to the conclusion that like from an outbound perspective, that will never, that will never be profitable. It just, there's no conceivable world that that can, that can happen given the price point, given the typical response rate to, you know, to cold outbound prospecting, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's, that's long-winded advice, but it's, it's trace, 
trace the full funnel and make sure that the advice you're giving is is like truly efficient on some objective financial measure that matters to the company and their investors. Yeah, not just uh, something that echoes a framework or propaganda that you're trying to promote as tar- part of your agency or practices brand. Oh, that's a whole, you got me on a yeah. whole other thing, by the way, which is like, <laughs> I, it, it drives me mad when people try to re recoin and make arguments that some things aren't others like well when you mentioned about the dichotomies it's the exact same thing we're yeah. debating we're debating semantics for the point of content and engagement when it yeah bant is perfect like mm-hmm. there are people who rail against bant because because the word is they, because they want to switch the word or they say it's in the wrong order like come on right <laughs> it's it's it, yeah look the the a for authority in bant doesn't does know, not change yeah yeah and it's that timeline okay, so, so does not change yeah. mm-hmm. and timeline yes is urgency and w- whatever like yeah you could i can get on a high horse on this one so yeah don't reinvent the wheel with your uh, with like recoin everything i think that's kind of goofy thank you for listening to another episode of the sales consultant podcast if you'd like to support the show it would go a long way if you were to write a short review on the listening app of your choice